Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 2, uh, verse 12. Uh, as we're continuing our series through the, the Gospel of John, uh, the question really that John is trying to address for us is not necessarily who is Jesus, but rather who is the Messiah, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. You see, it's a question of identity, and yet what John is going to try to show show us that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and then invites us in to believe so that we may have life in his name. Now, last week in our study, we said, how did the disciples know that, John, that Jesus uh, was the Christ, the Son of God? And we said kind of in a, a short answer because Jesus revealed his glory. And what John is going to show us through the rest of his gospel is not only how Jesus reveals his glory, but also how Jesus receives his glory. Now, now last week, uh, we said we're kind of entering into a new section of the Gospel of John. In chapter 2, it kind of starts off with Jesus' public ministry and his very first sign of taking water and turning it into wine. And we said there's so much going on in the story. We've got to de- a, a dig a little deeper. And so, so last week, we kind of learned uh, what this means and the significance of the first sign. We saw how, how Jesus came to bring a new way, how the old purification system has been filled and been put to the side and a new way had come that Jesus had come to purify his people but not just the exterior but rather to clean them from the inside out and not only does Jesus show us shows us he is the new boy but he also came to show us extraordinary grace like Jesus is the groom that's going to provide all of the wine for this wedding feast. He reveals uh, to, to us this new way of getting life and abundant life. He erases all the shame of not enough. And this new way is not just a way of barely getting by, but rather an abundance of way, a, a life that is overflowing. And then last thing we learned last week is that Jesus revealed his glory. And his glory was invisible for all to see. The servants who listened to the instructions of Jesus saw the miracle, but they didn't see the glory. The disciples, on the other hand, by faith, saw the glory behind the miracle. And as a result, John tells that they believed in his name. Now, in our text today, Jesus continues, or John continues with this theme of what Paul calls the old has gone, the new has come. And so last week, we saw the old purification system set to the side with the new wine of the kingdom of God. Today, we're going to see the old temple replaced with the new temple in the risen Lord. Now, it's important for us as we get into the passage to kind of uh, focus really on the heart of the issue that Jesus is addressing. Like, it's easy for us to look at the surface level of and like, okay, what in the world is going on? But rather what Jesus is doing is really looking at the heart of the matter. What's really going on in the story? Like, why is, really, why is Jesus really doing this? And I think for us to, to understand it, it gives us better clarity on to apply this passage to our lives. So let's look at John chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was new, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So so let's just stop here. 
John would regularly use this phrase after this. And I think he uses the phrase to connect two events and two stories. But what we also have to understand is this phrase does not indicate the time lapse that took place. So in other words, we do not know how much time took place between the wedding in Cana and him traveling to Capernaum and eventually make it to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. All we know is he uses this to connect these two stories together. But we don't know how much time has gone by. John also tells us that who was traveling with Jesus. We, we saw his disciples. We saw his mother. We saw his brothers. The disciples are still the same disciples we learned in John chapter 1. Still not all the 12 disciples that he called. And then he introduces to us his, his brothers. And his brothers more, more, more probably is his half-brothers who are children of Joseph and Mary that were all younger than Jesus. And so as they're traveling, they're going to eventually to Jerusalem because the Passover is near. Now we have to understand a little bit about the Passover to understand the text. And so if you're not familiar with the Passover, here's the Passover in a very abbreviated version. So during the Passover, the Jews would travel from all over the Roman Empire on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and to worship God. It was a time for the people of God to remember the night that the angel of death passed over their homes because they had the blood of the lamb that covered their door frames in a prescribed manner. And instead of their firstborn sons dying, the angel of death passed over their homes and killed all the firstborn sons in all of Egypt. And so as a result, this led to the deliverance of the people of God out of bondage, out of slavery. And so the Passover was a time for the people of God to remember how God had spared them, how God had delivered them. It was a time of worship and a time of celebration. It was such an important time that people all over the Roman Empire would travel hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to, to, to sacrifice and to worship the Lord. And when Jesus made it to Jerusalem, he did not find a temple that was filled with true worship and celebration. Instead, he found a temple that was transformed into a marketplace, a place of commerce. So let's look at verse 14. It says this, In the temple he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. And after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. And he told these, those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So obviously when Jesus arrives in the temple, he founds that the outer court of the Gentiles had been transformed into a marketplace. The temple became busy with trade. Merchants and money changers were, were setting up shop in the midst of the temple. And the cattle and the sheep and the doves were, were there to be sold for sacrificial worship for those who were traveling far distance. So instead of them traveling with their sacrifice, they could travel and actually buy their sacrifice on site. 
And because uh, the Roman Empire was so large and there were so many currencies, these money exchangers set up shop to take the currency that, 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 that they, these travelers came with and to exchange it with the temple currency and also, in a sense, collect the annual temple taxes. And so these services were not bad services. They were not evil in and of itself because travelers needed sacrifice. Sometimes you cannot travel with animals for the sacrifice, but rather you can buy it on site. Sometimes you have to exchange the currency so that it can match up with the currency of the temple because they needed the currency to keep up with the temple. These things in and of itself were not bad things. At times, they were necessary. They provided a good service for these people. And so, in a sense, Jesus does not rebuke the selling of animals. He does not rebuke the exchange of currency. He's not telling them, like, you should not be selling these things at a profit. You should not be exchanging this currency at a profit. You need to reform your, your, your business ethics because you are shrewd. No, all of these things were bad things. They provided good services. But what really is going on, as we look past the surface level, there is a much deeper problem. Look at verse 16 again. He told those who were selling doves, here's the part I want you to pay attention to. Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. In other words, what Jesus is saying, instead, instead of a solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there's the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition and holy adoration and prolonged petition, there's this noisy commerce. So in other words, if you're taking notes, here's, here's the, the deeper problem that was going on. The people turned the holy temple into a place of spiritual consumerism. The people turned the holy temple into a place of spiritual consumerism. Now, now let me ask you a really easy question. The people that showed up to worship God, do you think they knew what they were doing was wrong? No. Like in a sense, they're thinking to themselves, we have traveled, we have sacrificed just to be here. And yet, what were they really after? Were they really after remembering God and His faithfulness and worshiping God? Really what was happening is they made this worship and this festival all about themselves. The place that should have been set aside for worship was transformed into a marketplace where convenience and comfort takes precedence over truly worshiping God for who He is. And this is what was going on. And then on top of it, not only did people turn the holy temple into a place of spiritual consumerism, a place of comfort and a place of convenience, a place of personal preferences, but all of these things, these tables and these animals and these cattle were all set up in the outer 
courts. So, so, so in other words, in the temple, uh, you had technically three rooms, but because in this time, there were all of these Gentiles who wanted to worship God, the, the, the Jews came up with a, another room called the outer court. So in other words, if you were a Gentile, if you were a non-Jewish person that wanted to worship God, you could enter into the outer courts, but you cannot actually make it into the temple because you were non-Jewish. So in other words, they're saying you can worship God, but this is as far as you can go. And by then setting up shop in the outer court, what does that prevent the Gentiles to do? They can't enter in to worship because the very place of where they're supposed to worship now has turned into a marketplace. And so in other words, if you're taking notes, the second thing and the deepest problem is those who are far away from God, a.k.a. the Gentiles, now are pushed out for the convenience of the in crowd. So not only did the people turn this holy temple into a place of spiritual consumerism, a place of comfort and convenience, a place of ease, a place where it's all about themselves, but now those that actually really need to worship God, to remember Him, and to bring their sacrifices, they're pushed out. Why? So that we can provide these convenient services for the, our Jewish brothers and sisters. And Jesus would not stand for it. His zeal for the glory of the Father caused him to drive out those who made worship about themselves instead about the Lord. And by Jesus driving them out and overturning tables, there's two things we see if you're taking notes. The very first thing that Jesus does is he is cleansing the temple. But by Jesus driving out the animals, overturning the tables, the very first thing he's doing, he's cleansing the table, uh, the, the temple. Now, let me ask you this. Who, whose job was it to make sure the temple was clean? Not just physically, but also spiritually. There was not defied that everything was supposed to be done in, in order of the word of God. Who, whose job was it? You would think it was the job of the, the priest. It was the job of the priest to make sure that the temple remains holy, that the temple was not defiled, that everything that was conducted in the temple courts was done according to the word of God. But what did the priests not do? They did not, they did not make sure the temple was clean. They allowed this uncleanliness to continue. And in a sense, when Jesus comes in and he cleanses the table Whose job is he doing? The job of a priest. You see where I'm going? By him doing this, Jesus is entering into the temple, cleansing it. In a sense, he's establishing himself as a true and better priest that would bring cleansing. And this cleansing, eventually we'll find out, is not going to be momentary. It's not going to be external, but rather it's going to be lasting. It's going to be eternal and also in eternal and so by jesus cleansing the temple in a sense he's showing i am the better priest the second thing if you're taking notes of what jesus was doing by driving out and overturning these tables is that jesus is inviting people to worship god from the heart he's inviting people to worship god from the heart without glamour without the distracting influence, 
Like, like again, think about what, was, what did the temple represent? What was the focal point of the temple? The temple in its most foundational understanding was the place where God revealed himself, manifested himself, and a place where man will meet with God. It is a place where sacrifices were presented and a place where God will forgive sinners and accept his people. And in a sense, what is going on is that Jesus is is saying, this is not what's taking place here. It's become about all the glitz and the glamour. It's kind of all about the beautification of the building. It's become all about the conveniences of these services. By him cleansing out the table, he's inviting uh, the, the people to worship God from the heart because in a sense what he's going to do is he's saying one day this temple is going to be superseded by another temple. This sacrifice is going to be superseded by another sacrifice. And he's going to present himself and establish himself as the new temple and as the better sacrifice. And in a sense, we can worship God from the heart. Why? Because he's given us a new heart. He is the new temple. He is the new better sacrifice. He is the high priest that mediates for us. And so all of this is kind of going on. And again, it's kind of like blurry in the distance. We can't see it clearly in the text. And this is why we have to dig in. What is really going on by Jesus cleansing the temple? It's not because he's mad at the religious authorities. It's not because he's mad at these services and saying, you need to change your business practice around. It's because he's understanding what's going on. We've turned this, this, this temple into a place of spiritual consumerism. We've turned this table, pushed people that are far away from God, pushed them out, and they actually need to come in. And Jesus is saying, no, I've come to cleanse this table. I've come to invite people in to worship God with the whole heart, with the new heart that I'm going to give them. And so as Jesus is doing this, Look at verse 17 in how the disciples are kind of responding. And we don't know if they're responding on the spot with that verse or later on as John is writing and reflecting back. But look at verse 17. It says, And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now for most of us, we, we read this verse and we're kind of thinking like, that's kind of out of place or that is side commentary. Now first of all, John doesn't make us clear whether as Jesus was performing the action, that verse came to mind, or after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that that, those verse came to mind. But either way, what does he mean by this verse? So the text itself, zeal for your house will will consume me, is taken out of Psalm 69 verse 9. And the context of this psalm is when David is crying out to God because of the relentless opposition that he has endured from his enemies. And the reason for this relentless opposition is because of his zeal for the temple of God. Because he's so passionate about the house of his God, he is facing opposition. Now, again, we don't really know why, what they're telling him. All we know is that the source of this opposition or the reason for this opposition is because David is consumed for the temple and the house of God. And if you read 
Psalm 69, verse 9, the exact verse says, zeal for your house consumes me. And this is important for us to know the difference. And so as John is reflecting back on David, maybe what he is doing in the experience of David, he sees this prophetic paradigm that in a sense must anticipate what the greater David, that's Jesus, is going to experience. So in other words, because David experienced this, a better David might experience the same thing on a different level. So this is what he's kind of detecting in a sense. But notice, in the original text, Psalm 69 verse 9, it says, zeal for your house consumes me. That's present tense. Notice verse 17. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's future tense. Why the difference? I think why the difference is this. If the disciples remembered this verse at this time, maybe they were focused on Jesus is zealous for his father's house just like David was. But if they remembered it afterwards, which I think they do, they, now un- they were not focused on the zealousness, but rather on the consumption. What does it mean for Jesus that zeal for your house will consume me? What's going to consume Jesus? And what's that consumption? Death. So in a sense, because Jesus is standing up against these authorities, because he is cleansing the the, the temple, because he's concerned about right worship with God, right relationship with God, a place that's supremely designated to serve as the focal point between God and man. As a result of him doing this, he will be consumed through his death. And this is what that verse means. This is what John is, is saying. Because Jesus is zealous for God. And he's constantly saying, believe in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father, the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. This prophetic language that he will be consumed. In other words, he will die. Let's move on. Obviously, this all is happening in the background. We're not really understanding. We know the problem. We know what Jesus is doing as he overturns these tables. But look at how the the authorities respond in verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Now, who are these Jews? More than likely, they are maybe the temple authorities, which means they're the priests, or maybe they are the representatives of the Sanhedrin. Either way, they were the religious leaders. And in their question, they demanded Jesus to show some miraculous sign to justify such display of authority. So in other words, really what they're saying in a sense is, who gives you the right to do this job that God has appointed to us? Basically, that's what they're saying. Show us a miraculous sign to prove the authority that you have. Now, in a sense, 
the legal authorities had every right to ask Jesus what he's doing and why he's doing it. But really in their question kind of reveals to us their motives. Like what were they really after? Notice this, the first thing, their motives. They didn't examine whether Jesus' cleansing of the temple was justified. In other words, they did not ask Jesus, why are you doing these things? But rather they're asking, who gives you the right to do these things? If they were concerned about their job in cleansing the, ta- the, the, the temple, they would have said, okay, why are you doing these things? And if they asked why, we can say, well, maybe they were concerned about actually the cleansing of the temple, but they really didn't care about why. Rather, they cared who gave you the right. So they didn't really care about whether the temple was clean or not. They cared about discrediting Jesus and discrediting his authority to protect their own authority. Another thing maybe to to pay attention is that if the authorities who were maybe convinced that Jesus was acting out of insanity, a little loony running around, they wouldn't have asked him, who, who gives you the right to perform a sign for us? But rather, they would have said, you know what, buddy? Maybe you had too much. Let, let's, get, let, let's talk about it. Let, let's get out of here. But clearly, what did they ask? Show us a sign. And by them asking Jesus to show them a sign in the back of their mind there was some suspicion that maybe Jesus was sent by God as a prophet and they would on top of it by them asking Jesus show us a miraculous sign in a sense they're almost domesticating God hey God do us a trick so that we can believe in you and yet that's not how the God of the Bible operates He doesn't need you to believe in him. He doesn't need you to accept him. He doesn't need to perform a little trick so that you can just be wowed. And yet all of this is going on. Now we start seeing the motives of these religious leaders. They cared about the authority. They wanted to see a trick in an attempt to discredit Jesus. But what the authorities did not have is they did not have the eyes to see because Jesus has already shown them a sign, but they simply could not see it. And Jesus knows their hearts. And instead of giving them a sign on demand, uh, he points them to a sign to come. Uh, Look at verse 19. Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. So like on a surface level, he's actually challenging them. Go ahead and destroy this temple. And then he promises them to raise it up in three days after its destruction. And unable to call the bluff of Jesus, they're baffled. Because in a sense, Jesus did give them a powerful sign to justify his authority by rebuilding the temple. And this was even an appropriate sign because anybody who can restore the temple after its complete destruction in three days clearly must have the authority to regulate the practices of this temple. But they did not understand what Jesus was really talking about. They thought Jesus was talking about the physical and the material, about the building. But verse 20 tells us, look at verse 20. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? 
And John clarifies what Jesus was speaking about. Verse 21, he says he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. So obviously, uh, the, the, the Jews naturally thought about the building, saying, it's impossible, dude. This was constructed 46 years, and you're going to do this in three days? But they were so focused on the physical and the material that they completely missed what Jesus was really talking about. And John provides us an explanation what Jesus was talking about. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical or the material temple. He was referring to his own body. The body in which the word became flesh. Now this is a very hard part for us to understand. In the prologue, we learned about this word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In a sense, the Father and the incarnate Son, that's Jesus, enjoys this unique and yet mutual indwelling. You're like, what do I mean by that? Okay, I think the best way to look at it is John 14, verse 10 to 11. Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is what I mean by this mutual and unique mutual indwelling. Because what does Jesus tell his disciples? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And it's very confusing for us to understand because they are in a sense distinct and yet they're one. So there's this mutual indwelling that is taking place between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus even, even says, these words I speak to you, I don't speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So, so what Jesus is saying, the incarnate Son is saying, I and the, fa the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. We are in one. You're like, okay, you're confusing me. What's the point of all of this? All right, here's my, my point. Again, what did the temple represent? What was the meaning of the temple? The temple was God revealing himself to man, where God was dwelling among his people, manifesting himself, God was meeting with people, accepting sacrifices, forgiving of sin. It was a unique place. And what is Jesus saying? Who is he now? This new temple. This place where man meets with God. This place where God reveals himself. This place where our sins are being atoned for through the sacrifice and our sins have been forgiven. So, so if you're taking notes, easy way to understand is this. In Jesus' cleansing of the temple and confrontation with the religious leaders, his body was the temple that came to earth. His body was the temple that came to earth. In other words... In this new temple, this new place where we will meet with God, where our sacrifice will be made once and for all and our sins will be forgiven and we have access to God and God manifests himself, reveals himself, can all be found in the body of Christ. And when Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, 
he revealed to us the Father because of this mutual indwelling that was taking place. And in a sense, he's saying, I am this new temple of where you meet God. I am this new sacrifice that will cover your sins in full. I am this new priest that will mediate on your behalf, interceding for you between you and God the Father. And John, in a sense, saying, I know you don't get it because we did not get it either. When did we get it? We got it only after the resurrection. And think about it. What happened after the resurrection? Jesus' ascension. And what did we receive after Jesus' ascension? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And it was the Holy Spirit that illuminated the minds of the disciples. We're now able to recall what Jesus said and what Jesus meant. And notice what he says here in verse 22. What did they believe? So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the, they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. In other words, the Holy Spirit illuminated truth according to scripture. They believed it and they knew what Jesus said. And so that's the same for us. As we read this passage, as we see the complexities and at times are overwhelmed by it, we're trusting the Holy Spirit to illuminate so that we may believe Scripture, so that we may see what is actually going on in this text, that Jesus came and he brought in this new temple, the better sacrifice, a better priest. As he cleanses, he's inviting us in to come and worship God from the heart. In a sense, he's inviting us to himself. And in the final verses, John draws our attention to the crowd and Jesus' perception of what's happening in the hearts of the crowd. Look at verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem, during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now we would stop there and we're like, praise the Lord for that. They're seeing signs, they're believing in his name. But look at verse 24. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. See, at the same Passover festival, many people believed in Jesus because of the miraculous signs he performed. However, Jesus was not fooled by the lip service. He was not fooled by those who said they believed in him. Why? Because he knew their heart. He knew what was going on in their heart. He knew what they were thinking. The crowd wasn't interested in Jesus. They were interested in signs and wonders. They were interested in what Jesus could possibly do for them. They didn't want any transformation. They didn't want any cleansing. All they wanted was signs and wonders. And Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their hearts. Why? Because he was God. In a sense, what John is telling us is Jesus is acting like God. Because we know in Jeremiah 17 verse 10, it says, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. 
So if God examines the heart, examines the mind, examines the actions, that's what God does. What is John showing us what Jesus is doing? The same thing that God is doing, which means Jesus is acting as God because Jesus is God. Now, now let's wrap it up here with application. I really had a hard time with application because the problem is there's too many and I don't want to overwhelm you. And even in the 9 o'clock service, I felt like I botched the application. I couldn't get my, my, my train of thought right. So I'm going to try my best again. Hopefully the Spirit can lead me. I, I, I do think this passage has great application for us, especially living in such a consumeristic culture. We are consumers. And Christians have become spiritual consumers. In a sense, we care more about what God can do for us than who he actually is. We care more about God making our life comfortable, convenient, and easy. We care more about God showing us miracles and signs. We don't really care about God and who he is and what he came to do. And so here's the application. I'm just going to say one sentence and then unpack it. Jesus came to cleanse us. That's my application. Jesus came to cleanse us. He did not come to perform signs and wonders for you. He did not come to fix your problems. He did not come to make life comfortable for you. He did not come to make life easy. He did not come to make you happy. He came to cleanse you. And here's my fear for us. For many of us, we're like the crowds. We're like the religious leaders. We're demanding him to show a sign and a wonder. We're asking him to fix our marriage. We're asking him to fix our family. We're asking him to take care of our problems. We're asking him to, 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 to provide for all of these things financially. But what did he come to do? Did he come to fix these things? No. He came to cleanse you. This is why he came. He came to cleanse you. He came to transform you and cleansing you of your sin. He came to make you new. But so many times we find ourselves going after God and what he can do for us and taking care of all of these things that we're missing the very point of what he came to do. And I think part of why we miss the point of what he came to do is because we don't think we need cleansing. Everybody else needs it. My spouse needs it. My children need it. My boss needs it. My life group needs it. My friends need it. I don't need it. And this was the crowd. They missed it. Why did Jesus not entrust himself to it? to them he knew they weren't after what jesus really came to do they were after glitz and glamour spiritual consumerism and so 
Do you see your need for cleansing? And there's two ways we some three ways we kind of can answer it. One way is like, no, I, I just need you to cleanse these things, not me. Or another way we can say it is like, well, yeah, I need cleansing, but can you just tell me how to do it? Like, can you give me just like four or five steps, rub-a-dub-dub, and then I'll be cleansed? But what did Jesus come to do? He didn't come to tell you how to be clean. He came to clean you, to make you new, to transform you, to give you life. He didn't come for others. He came for you. He's calling you. So are you looking to him to cleanse you? And the only way we can see that is through the Holy Spirit opening up our eyes. And so as we, as we get ready to sit at the table, what does this table represent? This table reminds us of what Jesus came to do. He came to cleanse us how? By living a life we could not live and dying in our place. His body broken for us. His blood that was shed for us that covered all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame. So we did not have to carry it. To take it all away so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in all of our imperfections and all of our flaws. But he sees us as brand new because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus. And so this table reminds us, yes, you had a crummy week. Yes, you need some cleansing. But come because there's cleansing available. Don't sit in the seats and try to wash yourself. Don't be ignorant and look at everybody else's cleansing. You need to be cleansed. You need to sit at the table. You need to be reminded of what Christ has done for you. And so flee to this table, surrender, and look to the cleansing of Christ. And it's an abundant cleansing that covers all of it, past, present, and future. It's not a modification. It's not an improvement. It's not a rehab. It is a Tradical transformation. The old has gone, the new has come. The cleansing is as white as snow. And what that basically means is because you can't take anything and make it new again. It means brand new. I don't know how else to put it. White as snow means brand spanking new, fresh off the lot, fresh out the box, undefined. No one didn't even touch it. That's the work he does. And so as we get ready to sit at the table, two things I want you to meditate on. For some of you that maybe are in Christ, I want you to remember that Jesus came to cleanse you. You don't have to walk around with the guilt and shame of your sin. You can freely confess it knowing there's forgiveness, knowing he's taken care of it on the cross. As you're constantly looking to him to make you new, to transform you and to cleanse you. But then for, for some of you here, maybe you've never been cleansed by Christ because you've been too busy looking to yourself to clean yourself to get your own life in order. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. This is why Jesus came. If you could cleanse yourself, Jesus only would give you instructions, not himself. But he didn't give you instructions. He gave himself. Receive it. What more could you want from God, God giving himself?
Praise the Lord that he gave himself and not a set of instructions because he knew we need him. And so maybe for you this morning, participating in communion, you're receiving. As you're receiving that cleansing from the Lord, as you're saying, I can no longer cleanse myself. Your body that was broken for me, your blood that was shed for me, I receive it by faith. Thank you and help me to take a hold of that. And so let me pray for us. We'll distribute these elements. And wherever you are in your stage season of life, you meditate and reflect on these two things that we just talked about. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness. Lord, I thank you that you came and you gave yourself to us. What more would we want in life? What more could we ask for? Lord, help us not to settle for the tricks Help us not to settle for the smoke and the mirrors, the glitz and the glamour. Help us to come to you. Help us to see that you gave yourself to us to cleanse us, to transform us, to make us new. That you called us to yourself. And you who began a good work is going to finish it. And so by faith, help us to look to you. Help us to trust you. And for those who've never received you, Lord, help them to recognize their desperate need to be cleansed by you and trust you and fully surrender to you. As they believe your body was broken for them, your blood was shed for them, you lived the life they could not live and you died the death they were supposed to die. Help us to meditate on these truths and to remember and to receive with gladness of heart. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the provision that you've made for us. We thank you that you have given yourself to us by sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins, by giving us your Holy Spirit to live inside of us and to transform us and to sanctify us to make us holy and blameless. And so, Lord, I pray that in our struggle against sin and our fight against sin and all the many distractions of our world and all the problems that we face, that we would be reminded that you have come not to fix these things, you have come to cleanse us. And by cleansing us, it might fix some of these things. And praise the Lord if it does. And praise the Lord if it doesn't because you came to cleanse us. Help us to be overwhelmed by it. Help us to take hold of it. Help us to constantly look to you in it. For you are the new temple where we can meet with God. You are the new and better sacrifice that was sacrificed once and for all. And you are the new and better priest. That is our mediator between us and God. We thank you for it, and we praise you for it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.